good morning. I also want to welcome you this morning and uh, kind of catch up. Any of you who might be visitors or just with us recently, uh, ask you to continue to pray for Cody. He's our lead pastor, one of our elders. Uh, he goes back for his uh, post-op tomorrow and uh, hope to have some further instructions for how he can continue. Uh, Aaron and I were able to visit with him this week in his house, and he and Aaron and I are going to go each, each week and keep him in the loop with what's going on here, and we don't want him to come back, you know, to, to work um, blindsided or not aware of what's happening in your lives and happening in the lives of our church. And so um, I'll be honest with you, I don't think you might be sharing this, but there are times of discouragement for him, as you might imagine. He, he can't hold his children, um, which, which <laughs> having children just his age just terrifies me um, that I wouldn't be able to do that. He cannot drive right now. He cannot really get out of his house. And so while you're praying, for his physical recovery, uh, please also pray that the Lord would just give him grace and mercy each day as, as the Lord promises to do. And, um, and we promise to do our best to keep you informed and um, to keep uh, things going here. And so I'm, I'm honored to be able, I know Aaron is too, to be able to preach in Cody's absence. But I also know that it kills him uh, not to be here doing this with you. So please remember him and remember his family. As we get started today, I'll go ahead and ask you to turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 14. We are getting back into Matthew for the next couple of weeks. And uh, Aaron preached last week from the end of chapter 13. And that uh, story is actually going to connect quite nicely to today's story, although in, in a bit of an unforeseen and maybe unusual way. But before we get to Matthew chapter 14, I want to just read to you a, a news story that I found just in this past December. Some of you might remember that uh, I um, have been to Thailand a couple of times. It was actually the first country that I was able to go to and do international missions. And in Thailand, uh, there's a very strange law. Thailand is a constitutional republic. We can sort of say that under our breath because they, they're really not. <laughs> it's a really uh, corrupt government. I think right now the military runs it. Every few years they have a coup here and there, and it's a total mess. However, they do have a king. Uh, they have the longest reigning monarch in the world right now. And I cannot pronounce his name. It has more letters than our alphabet, I think. So I won't even attempt it. But they have a very strange law in Thailand that says that you cannot insult the king. You cannot talk about how he looks. You cannot talk about how he rules, although he has very little real power. You cannot criticize uh, his wealth. In fact... Like in a lot of countries, the monarch's picture is on Thai currency. And if you deface the currency, you face the wrath of the Thai government. So I found this story that I found just remarkably um, almost hilarious and a bit sad. And I want to read it to you and I'll see how it gets us into our text today. It says here, this is from time.com in December of 2015. It says, a Thai man faces up to 37 years in prison. 37 years in prison for mocking the king's dog on social media. An apparent violation of Thailand's stringent laws against, against insults aimed at the country's monarch. This case is the latest concerning a breach of Thailand's controversial lay majesté laws, the scope of which, experts say, has broadened considerably in recent years. Last December, two Thai students in their 20s pled guilty to insulting the monarchy after staging a play about a fictitious king. Journalists also noted that the Times report on the charges against this man did not appear in the editions of the newspaper printed and sold in Thailand. This is the third time in a month that a blank space has appeared in lieu of content in the Thai edition. Now just imagine living in a place 
where even insulting the king's dog could get you 37 years in prison. People in our country commit heinous crimes and don't even get 37 years in prison. And yet this man faces perhaps the remainder of his life for insulting the king's dog. It's really remarkable. In today's text, we see someone speaking against an evil king, and it cost him a lot more. And you know, I want to make a couple of preparatory remarks about today's text. I, I need to kind of show my hand, if it were, if we're playing poker, and tell you that I, I have a theological, intellectual, and historical commitment to say that the Bible is not about America. And you need to hear me say that clearly. The Bible just never addresses America. It doesn't talk about the land of America. It doesn't talk about the destiny of America. It doesn't place us in end times. None of that kind of stuff. But I also refuse to believe that this text exists right now for us to examine at such a time as this on accident. Because I truly believe that this text right here speaks to our current national situation. And so while I want to do my best, and I hope you'll hold me accountable to this, to not stray into proof texting and to not stray into this kind of intellectual laziness that says, well, well these events have to be connected to this event and, and this, is, this is about us in our day, I don't want to do that. But I do want us to examine honestly the events that unfold in the first part of Matthew chapter 14 and ask some hard questions about what it means for us. Ask some hard questions about how we can apply the truth, the, the historical event that happened 2,000 years ago to the historical setting that we find ourselves in today. And I hope that as we go along today that I'll be able to accomplish that. And I hope that I'll be able to stick true to those principles that I've just laid out for you. In the meantime, let's go ahead and stand. So if we do nothing else, we're going to read God's word. And uh, that'll be good for us, okay? So if I fail miserably, it will not be because the Lord is unfaithful. So let me read the first 12 verses of chapter 14. And then we will pray and we will continue. This is Matthew writing, remember, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that everything he records is true. and Everything that he records is helpful for us. It says this, at, the time, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants... This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. Because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that when he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us discernment to see how this historical true event in the life of John the Baptist in, in a tumultuous political environment. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom to see how this informs us. 
how this bears on us, how this pushes on us to engage, Father, against a wicked climate that we find ourselves in. I pray that we would realize that this text here is given for our benefit, for our training in righteousness, for our correction, for our rebuke, for our exhortation, for all the things that your word promises. We, we lay hold of those promises today for this text. And we ask that you would give us ears and that you would give us eyes to see. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want to do is also give a few preparatory remarks about the historical setting here. And, and, and I've told you before, I, I could spend the whole time doing this, and I'm going to spare you from that because I love history, and I have a degree in history, and I can just talk about history all day long. It makes me so sad that some of you, many of you, all of you maybe, do not like history. I'm just confessing. However, we, get, we have to understand a little bit about what's happening here for, for any of this to even make any sense. And so we have to break this down into a, into a couple of, of little sections here, and we see these first two verses. We kind of have a departure from the narrative of last week. You know, we, I told the students um, on Wednesday night, and those of you who were gathered here also as I was teaching, that sometimes these verse and division, uh, verse and chapter divisions in our Bibles can be a little bit unhelpful. And what I mean by that is, is that sometimes they can break the flow of thought. All right? you, you need to remember that these verse and chapter divisions were not there in the original writings. They were, they were given to us later by later editors and later copiers, and they're very helpful. They're very helpful for us in memorizing Scripture. They're helpful for us in referencing Scripture. They're helpful for us in preaching. But sometimes they can interrupt the narrative as it is intended to be received. And I think this is one of those times where we, we come out of chapter 13, where we've been in the parables, and then we have this interesting um, anecdote at the end where Jesus is rejected in his hometown, and then it seems like we just we push stop and we pick up on, a, on an unrelated and a new situation. And that's not really what's happening. You see, the end of 13 and the beginning of 14 are intimately connected because they both involve deep misunderstanding. Deep misunderstanding. You see, in chapter 13, as we learned last week, even Jesus' own family, even his own friends in the town of Nazareth, rejected him. They did not understand him. They misidentified him as their Messiah. Herod is guilty of the same crime. Herod is guilty of the same offense at the beginning of chapter four, of chapter 14. rather. Now remember, this is not the same Herod that tried to murder the baby Jesus. All right? We're about 30 to 35 years after that event occurred. And so the, the Herod is just a, a name for several of these wicked rulers over Judea who were all kind of, forgive the slang here, but kind of inbred. It was just a really messed up family, all right? Really messed up. Kids involved with parents and cousins and just a total mess. This is a different Herod, but in the same line. It's in the same line. So this Herodian dynasty, if we can call him that, it has been opposed to Jesus even from his birth. So Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, as history calls him, says, you know, this Jesus guy that I'm hearing all about, he's got to be John the Baptist brought back from the dead. He's got to be that prophet that I killed, brought back from the dead, doing miraculous things. Now, that might seem a bit silly to us, and that might seem a bit superstitious to us, but this superstition was common in this day. 
This superstition was common throughout the Middle East, throughout those, those cultures, that, that a person could, could either come back from the dead or a person could appropriate or borrow, if you will, the, the traits of a dead person. And so Herod is thinking, that's got to be what's happening here. And so we're, we're told that, and then, then we kind of have this flashback. We do have a departure from the chronology of Matthew. And that's also an important thing for us to keep in mind when we're, when we're thinking about defending the Gospels, when we're thinking about uh, giving a, a reason for the hope that we have. You often hear critics say, well, the Gospels really get chronology messed up. They really get uh, uh, historical events out of order. They, the gospel writers are clearly confused about the chronology of Jesus' life. You hear this critique particularly about the gospel of John. Because John places historical events way out of whack. He puts events that were at the end of the life of Jesus towards the front of his gospel and then vice versa. Well, that would be a legitimate critique if the gospel writers were concerned with writing a chronological history. But that is not their concern. Their concern is to write a biography of the person of Jesus of Nazareth to convince you and convince me that he is the Messiah. And so like any good biographer, they can employ literary tactics like flashbacks, like foreshadowing. That's what Matthew is doing here. He's taking a break from the narrative and he is reminding the reader what happened in the life of John the Baptist. You will remember that, that John the Baptist plays an important role in the life and ministry of Jesus. Going before him in the wilderness, preaching repentance, preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 3. And then we see the remarkable uh, baptism of Jesus where, the, where we see a, a Trinitarian picture of the identity of God. God the Son, and God the Spirit, and God the Father all present in the baptism of of Jesus right there with John the Baptist. And then, of course, Jesus spoke of John the Baptist as being the greatest born among women. John the Baptist was the real deal. John the Baptist, in many ways, was the last Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist was the last messenger to speak about the Messiah before the Messiah arrived and coinciding with the arrival of the Messiah. So John the Baptist is an important figure. Matthew is not satisfied to let John the Baptist's life just kind of slip away. He's not satisfied to just let you kind of wonder, well, I wonder what happened to that John guy. No, he goes to great lengths to tell us what happened to him. So then in verse 3, we go back in time. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Verse 4. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. All right, more history. So Herodias was married to Herod's brother. And I told you this family is really messed up. She divorced him. She decides to go be with Herod. Well, meanwhile, Herod had divorced a couple of wives also. In fact, one of those divorces was so consequential that the king, the neighboring king of, of, of a kingdom called the Nabataeans, which if you've ever seen that Indiana Jones movie where they come into Petra and they, they see the, the um, city carved into the rock wall called the treasury, which I thought was fake until I was able to go there a few years ago, and it is one of the most remarkable things you'll ever see in your life. That's where that kingdom was, down in, in Jordan. Well, that king had a daughter that Herod, Herod married, and then when Herod put her out, put her aside, Old daddy got a little offended by that and started a war <laughs> down there between the Judeans and the Nabataeans. And it was a complete mess. 
And so these two people have left destruction in their wake. They have left destruction in the wake of their unfaithfulness. And so John says, it is not lawful for you to have her, king. It is not lawful for you to have this woman, king. Perhaps if he had thought, well, we're not electing a pastor, he wouldn't have lost his head. Perhaps, I don't know. Verse 5, though the king wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Verse 6, though when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Verse 8, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So what's happening here? What's happening here is John the Baptist, notice, notice there in the text that he was not just one time denounced this relationship. That's not what's happening. The tense of that verb is ongoing denounced. And we might think, well, why is John so concerned with this seemingly pagan ruler, with this guy who is, has a family history that dates back decades of debauchery? Well, I'll tell you why he's concerned. Because this man, Herod, masqueraded around like a faithful Jew. Remember, they're under Roman rule. They're under the tyranny of Caesar. However, in their region of Judea, they are still permitted to have a local ruler. They are still permitted to have someone who shares their cultural values, who speaks their same language, who in this case claims to practice their same religion. And yet, and yet, violates in front of God and everybody the clear mandates of the scripture that he is claiming to uphold. And so John says, this is not lawful for you, Herod. This is not lawful for you to have this woman. And we see that Herod wanted to kill him. Herod wanted to murder him. He, he wanted to, to end this annoyance. But he was fearful. This is what all insecure, tyrannical people have in common. They are fearfully insecure and they are always woefully inadequate. You see, he wanted to murder him. He had the power to murder him, but he was scared to death of the people. Does this sound familiar? If you fast forward just a few months or a couple of years in the life of Jesus, remember how that plays out? Remember how that plays out with the, the Sanhedrin and even with Pilate, the local Roman official? Pilate says, you know, I, I don't think that Jesus has done anything wrong. I, I can't really find fault in him. And then he goes to the people. Should I release this murderer, Barabbas? Should I release this guy who's been responsible for killing people and trying to overthrow the Roman government? Or should I release Jesus who has healed of some people? <laughs> And fed some people. Barabbas, they say. And what does Pilate do? He's a coward. He lets Barabbas go. And so even, even as we look backwards at the life of John, you need to see here that Matthew is pointing forward to the unjust execution of the Messiah. To the unjust execution at the hands of corrupt officials, both local and national both religious and secular, he's pointing forward to what is going to happen to Jesus. Remember, John paved the way for Jesus to preach. And now, in a sense, John paves the way for Jesus to be executed. 
unjustly. Unjustly. And so Herod, this Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas is a coward. But notice how insecure he is. Notice how easily swayed he is. When the birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, remember his stepdaughter, she danced before the company and pleased Herod. So he made an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So here is a man, envision it. Here is a man, it's not hard for you to envision, who says, my daughter is beautiful enough to convince me to give away whatever. To make a promise or whatever. Right? He, my daughter is beautiful enough to convince me to execute a man in prison. But not just his daughter, his crazy wife is cunning enough to use her own daughter. Are you getting the picture of how corrupt this situation is? Of how morally bankrupt the leadership of Israel is at this time? And yet John just says, it's not lawful. It's not lawful. It's not lawful. Over and over and over again. And yet, he still is not killed until... Herod makes a foolish vow, a foolish oath, and then he regrets it. He says, verse 9, the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Now, let's not, let's not be under any illusions that the king suddenly feels remorse for wanting to kill John the Baptist. The king suddenly didn't have a change of heart. He, he didn't suddenly think, maybe John's not that bad of a guy. Like, maybe, maybe John's like... I mean, I know that he's coming after me, but he's pretty decent. Like, I mean, he, he, he was a pretty good preacher, and um, he, he's doing good in the community. I mean, whatever you might say about somebody who lives a good spiritual religious life. No, 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 no. He's only sorry because he has to kill him because he fears the people. So now he fears his guests. He fears the boys in the locker room. He fears the ones that he doesn't want to let down, the people who are giving him ungodly advice, and he fears the people that he is supposed to rule. So what is he to do? Well, you see what he chooses. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. No trial. No request to the next level of government. No you have anything to say? No. What's your favorite last meal? He just makes a hasty decision and says, go, go do it. I can't be embarrassed in front of these guys. I can't be seen to be weak in front of my guests. I've made this oath. I've allowed my stepdaughter to seduce me. I've allowed my crazy wife to use my stepdaughter to seduce me into making this clouded decision and to, and to not even thinking rightly. Cut his head off. I want you to notice Whose head is not on the platter? Whose head is not on the platter? The Pharisees. I want you to notice who never, ever seems to ruffle the feathers of the Herods of the day. Who never really seems to, to rile up the people in power. Oh sure, a Pharisee's quick enough to go find a woman caught in adultery and somehow let the man get away. A Pharisee is quick enough to rebuke Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. A Pharisee is quick enough to say, Jesus, your disciples don't wash their hands when they're eating. What's up with that? 
Oh, no, but let the supposed ruler of God's people, let the supposed one who is supposed to set the example, take his brother's wife, start a war because of his divorce, crickets from the Pharisees. Crickets from the Pharisees. John? Courageous prophet. The Pharisees? Cowards. Cowards. They went after the people that were helpless. They went after the people who didn't look like them. They went after the people who were, who were weak in their spirituality. They went after the sick, Jesus said. But they didn't go after the people who were supposed to be setting the example. They didn't go after the people who would threaten their power structure, who would threaten their um, prestige, who would threaten their level of influence. It doesn't say that directly. But in none of the four Gospels will you ever find a Pharisee speaking up like this. But you find John. You find John the Baptist saying it is not lawful to this wicked, evil king. Let's let's go back even further in time to the Old Testament. What I want to do is contrast the king's response, Herod's response, to a prophet's confrontation with David's response to a prophet's confrontation. I don't have to refresh most of you, but we'll do it briefly anyway. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the second king of Israel. David, who is spoken of in such glowing terms. Uh, David, the one through whom the Messiah would come. You, of course, know the story. David uh, is out on his rooftop one day. Bathsheba catches his eye. He's not there by accident, I can assure you. He sends for her. He takes her. He murders her husband, her faithful husband, who won't even go home to her after the king has told him to do that because he's too loyal to the king. He sleeps on the king's steps. So he murders him. They think, "Ah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. We've gotten away with it. Yeah, I know you're pregnant, but people, I guess in those days, weren't that good at math. I'm not sure. But it'll be fine. Nobody will, nobody will bat an eye about this. Well, of course, you know there was a prophet named Nathan in the land. And he comes to David, and he says, King, I would like to tell you a story. And David's like, I love stories. Please tell me. I can't wait for this. It's one of the best stories in the Bible. If y'all hadn't read it, you go back. He says, King, there's a guy in the land. He's really poor. Like, he just has very few things. And he just, he's got this sheep. It's a pretty sheep. It's a beautiful sheep. He loves this sheep. Like, I mean, the man is just smitten with this sheep. That sounds kind of weird. But he, just, he was just really, really into the sheep. And David says, okay, tell me more. Tell me more. You can see David leaning in like, this is going to be good. I know about sheep. I'm a shepherd. I, I used to do that kind of stuff. He says, yeah, but one day, king, uh, there was a very rich man that came through. He had all the sheep he wanted. Had access to any sheep he wanted, had access to whatever he wanted. And he went to this poor man and he said, I'm taking your sheep. The Bible tells us that David becomes enraged. Not just annoyed, not just, well, that's, that's, that's really unjust. We should write that wrong. No, he becomes enraged. He says, bring me this man right now and I will kill him on the spot. And then Nathan, in probably one of the most courageous acts in the history of God's people, takes his finger and points it in David's face and says, you are the man. You are the man. 
And what does David do? He repents. He comes undone. You know why? Because the Spirit of God was in David. Because David was a believer. Because David, despite his flaws, despite his unbelievable sins, sins believed in God, trusted in God. And so when a man of God came, comes to him and points at him and says, you are this man, he comes undone. He can't stand it. The conviction is all over him. Now contrast that to Herod. Day after day, John the Baptist says, it is not lawful for you, supposed Israelite, supposed follower of God, supposed one who is supposed to set an example for us, it is not lawful for you. And every time, what does Herod do? He rebuffs him. Every time, he rebuffs him. And it eventually costs John his life. So the hard question for us that we cannot avoid is which response are we going to have? Which response are we going to have when someone comes to us and says, you are the man. You are the one who's unfaithful to your wife. You are the one who is harming your children. You are the one who is doing this or that. What do we do? Well, God help us to take the posture of David. God help us to take the posture of David. Because if we don't, we need to be terrified that we are like Herod. We need to be terrified that we are lost as the day is long and that on the last day, if we have not repented, we will go to hell. We need to be terrified. Now let's flip the script. When we have people in our culture who speak truth to power, when we have people in our culture who who are like John the Baptist, what do we do? Do we go to John and say, well, this is bring court. We say, oh, but the other guy. We say, oh, all have fallen short. Oh, that sounds really judgmental, John. I guarantee you that's what the Pharisees said. I guarantee you they said to John in private, please stop this. Please, you're causing trouble for us. Please, this is not good for us. But friends, I need to remind you that you and I have such a higher allegiance than anything that we can even see on this earth. We have such a higher allegiance to the kingdom of Christ than any of the kingdoms that we inhabit. And so when somebody who is bold enough to speak like a prophet and point out wickedness, do do we go after them? Or do we condemn the wickedness? You know as sure as I stand here right now that unfortunately, somehow, through a scheme of Satan, that this current climate has divided Christians in a way that nobody could have ever imagined. It has Christians looking at other Christians and saying, oh, just, just please don't bring that up. But, but what about the other guy? What about them? What about them? I've been more burdened this week over this text than anything I've ever preached. And it it has totally caught me off guard. I am am completely unprepared for it. And I am completely inadequate for it. But as I said at the beginning, I cannot escape the providence of God that this text lies before us on October 9th, 2016. I cannot escape it. I cannot escape it. 
So are, do, do we want to be Pharisees? Do, do we want to be Herods? Do we want to be people who divide each other and accuse each other? And do, do we want to do that? Or do we, want, do we want to look and say, if it's sin, we just call it out? Because it seems that we are so comfortable doing that in the world. We are so comfortable pointing out sin until sin is found in our allies. And then we say, oh, but we all fall short. Oh, just calm down. We can't do that. We can't do that. You, you shouldn't expect that from your pastors. You shouldn't expect Aaron finds sin in me that I go to him and say, well, chill, bro. We're friends. We're on the same side. It don't work that way. If he finds sin in me and I find sin in him and we find sin in each other, we've got to work it out. We've got to call it out. Now, hopefully lovingly, please. Hopefully, you know, like, like gently and hopefully patiently over time. It doesn't work with our children. Children don't come home and they're in trouble and they say, but mom, this guy, but mom, yeah, this just practically doesn't work out that way. This is what it's come to. This is what it's come to. It's very burdensome. It's very burdensome. The last thing I think we need to say about the integrity of a courageous prophet is this. Do you think for a moment that John the Baptist had any kind of gross public sin in his life or probably even any private sin in his life? I, I don't think that he did. Jesus spoke about him as the greatest man born of woman. John the Baptist was infilled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And so John could look at Herod and say, it is unlawful for you. You know why? Because John wasn't unfaithful in his life. John wasn't lacking integrity. John wasn't acting one way in public and another way in private. John lived a consistent, open life in front of anybody who would listen and look. And so when he went to the king, he could say, you are a wicked man. And he could say it with full integrity. And so my question for us then, my question and my, my application for us as we, as we think about how to apply this ancient text into our chaotic and messed up current situation is that in a month, in the next month when we are saying Hillary Clinton is an untrustworthy criminal, do you have integrity at work? Do your emails contain things that would shame you? Do you speak to people that you shouldn't speak to? Men, are you involved with women you shouldn't be? Women, are you, are you pining for some man that you shouldn't have? Or when we say Donald Trump is a, a louse and a philanderer and an adulterer and a bigot and whatever else we want to call him, do you and I harbor those thoughts? Do you and I have locker room talk with the guys? Folks, if there was ever a mirror in front of us for what we are like, it is right now. And so we got to get before God and we got to say, God help us. We don't want to be like Ahab or Jezebel. We don't want to be like them. One of them is going to rule us. But by God, we don't have to be like them. And by God, we can preserve our Christian witness and integrity and prophetic voice to call out sin, even if the party's name is behind it. And we must, 
and we must, because you and I have no right to say to a lost and dying world, you're corrupting marriage. We have no right to say to the homosexuals, you are threatening my way of life. We have no right to say to the Muslims, you guys are trying to take over the world. Meanwhile, when we sit back and say, if our God does it, chill out. Friends, it does not work that way. Gospel living demands better integrity than that. And so I am just asking us, are we going to be a courageous prophet? Are we going to be a cowardly king? There there are really only two choices in the Christian life. And as our nation gets more hostile, as we go further and further from our roots as a nation founded under Christian principles, as we go further and further away from cultural Christianity, as we go further and further away from biblical ethics, you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, cannot lose its prophetic voice. We cannot surrender it to a political party. We cannot surrender it to short-term victories. We must stand firm on the word of God no matter the cost. And we must have compassion on each other. We must have compassion on each other. Friends, in one month, you need to vote your conscience. And you need to do it. And you need to be able to go to sleep at night. However you pull that lever. Whatever name you choose. But by God, do not bind someone else's. Do not say it is unchristian to do this or that. Do not say that it is unfaithful to not do this. Or to sit out. Or to do whatever. Friends, just get along with you and God. Settle whatever issues you got to settle. But have grace towards each other. Don't fight with each other. Don't condemn each other. Don't social media shame each other. Have your convictions. Have your courage. Speak your peace. But do it in a way that honors God. Do it in a way that John the Baptist, this is just not lawful. This is just not lawful, guys. It's just that simple. And then the chips have to fall where they may. And here's the good news. None of you are going to be beheaded because of your Facebook post. None of you are going to be beheaded because of the water cooler conversation. None of you, try as you might want to, you're going to do anything physical to me after the service. Because Charles Murchison's got my back. He tells me. I don't know. That's what. Because praise God, we live in a place that, that we're protected from that. Praise God, even still today, however you want to wring your hands, however you want to say how bad it's gotten, it's gotten bad. It's going to get worse. But right now, today, we don't pay the price of John the Baptist. We don't. So let's praise God for that. But let's be as courageous as him. Let's be willing to pay the price that John the Baptist paid. Let's not be scared. Let's not be cowards. Let's be courageous prophets in an age of wicked kings. Let me pray for you. Father, we confess that we are we are so confused. We, we are so worried about the future of our country. We are so concerned with the world that our kids are going to step into. We, we, are, we are rightly concerned about the march of wickedness in our land. Father, help us. Help us to not contribute to that wickedness. Help each of us in this room to live lives of such radical integrity that no matter what our government looks like, non-Christians can look at us and say, those people believe what they say. Father, give us the wisdom and the grace to live with each other. Father, help us to know that we're all each other's God. That the church is an eternal family and that 
our political bonds are just temporary. Father, I do pray for the state of our country. It is broken. We have wicked kings going before us. We have wicked rulers who are opposed to you. And Father, we confess we do not know what to do. We do not know how to handle it. But we also know that none of this has caught you off guard. That even our earliest brothers and sisters, right after the time of Jesus, were living in such conditions that we cannot even imagine. And yet, the promise you made to Peter, that the gates of hell will not come against the church, stands true today. All of us are testimony of that, God, that you have saved us, that you have brought us into fellowship with each other, that you have rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness, and you've brought us together to live in a kingdom of light. Oh, Father, help us to be courageous prophets in a time of such cowardly kings. Oh, Father, I pray you give us grace with each other. I pray you give us wisdom. I pray you give us courage. Father, give our church great work to do. Give us great opportunities for gospel witness. Make a lost world look at us and say, those people, those people are doing it. Those people are living it. Those people are trusting in Jesus. Father, may that be said of us. I ask that you allow our hearts to be reflective in this time of worship through song. Father, help us. Give us faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.